Thank you, Nathan. What an encouraging song. Important reminder. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a variety of passages, mostly in Ephesians 4 and 5 today. But you can go ahead and start making your way there. I'll give you a quick update. Uh, Pastor Mark told us that Emma was discharged from the hospital yesterday and uh, is continuing antibiotics. So we can continue to pray for them. They've had a very hard uh, several weeks and uh, are experiencing the, heart, the heartache and the hardship of life in a fallen world, as we all are in different ways. So let's remember to pray for Emma and pray for our pastor and pray for, uh, pray for those around us who are suffering. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, our desire is that you would now speak, that you'd speak among us and give us hearts that are attentive. Lord, I trust that you have a word for us today from your scriptures. And so we're asking that you would be kind to us and let us hear you. Lord, we don't deserve this. And there are many things that can distract us from this. In fact, there's an enemy who's working this morning to prevent us from hearing you. So we pray against his schemes, and we pray for the positive work of your spirit among us, that your kingdom would grow. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I have learned as a parent is that the responsibility of a father is not only to teach my children how to walk or to teach my children how to ride a bike, but it is to capture those moments on camera, right? If you can't prove that your children walk, they don't walk. Everybody knows that. If it's not on Instagram, they, they, don't, they don't walk, right? Father skills include camera skills. If you don't know this, now, now you know. Just last week, my middle daughter, Addie, was, uh, she's been working on learning to ride a bike, and she's been training on a balance bike. And we put her, we took her off the balance bike, and we put her on her new pink Minnie Mouse bike with the streamers going down the side and the Minnie Mouse thing strapped on the front. Everything is pink. We put her on it, and I could tell that she was going to learn to ride a bike that day. I mean, immediately. And I was excited for her, and I could immediately tell that today was going to be the day, but then I started to panic because I didn't have my phone with me, right? My phone was in the garage. We were out in the driveway, and so I said, Addie, wait ran in, got my phone, came back out and said, okay, now you can learn to ride a bike again. And I caught it on video. It's a good thing. The same thing applies to children who are learning how to walk, right? I was able to look through this week and dig through the 9,000 photos that I have managed to accumulate in the last few years and found a video of Karis six years ago, dressed in all pink, stretching her arms out, doing the mummy walk as she took her first couple of steps. And I had it on camera. You know, the reason that we want to get these moments on camera is because they're milestones. They're developmental milestones in the lives of our children. Learning how to ride a bike or learning how to walk are skills that my children will use the rest of their lives. I mean, think about walking especially. How many steps will my daughters take in their lifetime? Among all the physical skills, is it not among the most important? This morning, we will see that the image of walking 
holds a central place in the Bible. I, I suppose it's as common as the theme of light and darkness, which we le- recently explored. It has hundreds of uses. In fact, when the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, when he describes the Christian life, he uses walking as a primary image. And so this morning, I'd like to ask the question, if the Christian life is described as a walk, what does that teach us? How how is that important to us? And so we are going to look at a sampling of texts from Ephesians where Paul uses this theme of walking. Since I'm skipping it around a little bit, we've put some of these verses up on the screen for you. But you'll notice Ephesians chapter 4, listen to this text. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Again, in Ephesians 4, 17, it says, Now I say this and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The next text, Ephesians 5, we're told, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Another example is Ephesians chapter 8, where Paul says, You were at one time in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. One final text, Ephesians 5.15. These are all from two chapters in Ephesians. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully, Christians, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, obviously, Paul is using a metaphor. This is not, he's not speaking of looking how careful, well, no, we're teaching our children look where they're walking, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's, he's describing a, the idea of walking as a metaphor. So let's just think about this image for a moment. What, what is entailed in walking? Well, the idea of walking assumes continual progress. Continual progress in a particular direction, right? If you're going to be walking, a couple things are true. Number one, you've got to be moving, right? Can't walk if you're not moving. And number two, if you're walking, you're going to be moving in a particular direction. You cannot be walking without walking in a particular direction. So the Bible uses walking as a way to describe the direction of our lives, which is determined by the choices that we make. So it would make sense that another common image in the Bible is this idea of path, where the image of walking and paths are closely associated together. Paths are a way to picture the Christian, the lifestyle, and the choices that people make, as well as the ones that they should avoid. There are good paths and there are bad paths. Psalm chapter 1, which you heard read this morning, says that the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Right? They don't walk in the way of the wicked. Or in Proverbs, we're told many times, that a wise person avoids walking in the way of evil men, right? The way that a person walks is based on the decisions that they make. 
Your path, the path you're walking on, is a composite picture of how you have chosen to live your life. That's the biblical idea of a, of a path. It's how you conduct yourself. It's how you orient your life. It is the direction that you are going, right? This is a familiar image to us, isn't it? But the question is, what can we learn from it? What, what, what does Paul want us to understand in Ephesians? When, when he says to look carefully then, in Ephesians 5, to look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, what is he wanting us to do? Well, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that there are three primary lessons that we can learn from this image of walking. Three lessons that we can learn from this image of walking. The first would be this. There are two ways to live. There are two ways to live. It is impossible to walk without choosing a direction to go in. Right? If you're going to go out on a walk with your family, the first thing that you have to decide is which direction will we go? If you have young children, like I do, we go in three different directions, right? And we're like scrambling to gather and get, you know, constantly heard in a general direction. But we still have to choose, everyone has to choose a direction. Which means that we are moving. Walking means moving, which means you are going somewhere. Every single one of us, for every single one of us, our lives are headed in a particular direction. You are aiming for something. You are going somewhere. You are headed towards some place, which means you are also headed away from some place. It's unavoidable. That's what walking is. And the Bible makes it very clear that contrary to popular culture, contrary to Frank Sinatra, contrary to Oprah Winfrey, right, that there are not multiple ways. You do not get to choose your own path. You do not get to make your own destiny. But rather, there are only two paths. The Bible is remarkably clear about this. There are only two paths. There is a path that leads to life, and there's a path that leads to destruction. There's a path that leads to life and a path that leads away from life. Those are the only two options. This is exactly how Moses framed his options for the people of Israel. When he said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he said, See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, and by, there's, there it is again, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, I declare to you today you will surely perish. Look what he says. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Do you see that there is a choice set before each one of us today? Will you choose to obey the Lord and choose life? Or will you choose death? 
We are often told that each one of us must choose his own way, that we must find our own path. But Jesus says there are only two ways to choose. There are only two options, two paths to choose from. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, For the gate is wide that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. They're many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I mean, did you hear that? That that the path, there's a path that leads to destruction, and there's a path that leads to life. And so, my friends, the question I would want to ask you today is, which path have you chosen? What is the trajectory of your life? I suppose we could say it doesn't really matter how you walk if you're walking in the wrong direction, right? It doesn't matter a lick how you walk if you're going the wrong way. Several years ago, Nate Fowler and I came up with a plan. We decided that we were going to get up early and we were going to go hiking on the Appalachian Trail. If you're familiar with the Appalachian Trail, it's very hard to get lost on the AT. There's a north and there's a south. There's, there's a marker every 50 feet on the trail, right? It's not a place. It's a place for directionally challenged people, right? You go north or you go south. It's real simple. And we decided that we wanted to do a hike, and we wanted to hike a long time, but we both had afternoon plans. So Nate had the idea of getting up really, really early. And so I think we met at the church parking lot before 5 a.m., and the goal was to see how far could we walk before he had to get to a birthday party and I had to get home at like 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And so we drove out to Irwin, got on the trail in the pitch dark, and we hiked in the dark for several hours. And we were excited when the sun came up. We could start to see down through the valley the, the shimmering lights of Irwin McDonald's, right? And we enjoyed it as the sun was coming up. And, and as we, we had been walking for several hours, and I started to think something about the profile seems a little bit off for me. The, the trail seems to be going up longer than I expected, So I pulled out my guidebook, and I realized I had led us in the wrong direction. We were going the wrong way, right? And and it wasn't a big deal because we were just going to hike in and hike out, right? So uh, I wish I could blame it on Nate. But it was was my fault. I'd led us in the wrong direction. Instead of going uh, north, we had gotten on the trail going south. And so we were hiking in the wrong direction. Friends, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters in your life if you are walking in the wrong direction. Jesus said the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We should be careful of just assuming that we are one of the few that find it. We should examine. Are you walking in the right direction? How can you be sure that you are not on the road that leads destruction. How can you be sure that you are walking the right way? Well, Jesus said, he said, I am the way. I am the path, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was saying that the only way to life, the only right direction, the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that 
every single one of us has been blinded by sin and that we have naturally chosen the wrong direction in the dark. And unless you turn, unless you go from north to south, unless you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, unless you turn away from living for yourself and start living towards Jesus, you will not find life, but you will find destruction. For Jesus is the only way to God. There are two ways to live. And every single one of us, every person here is walking towards God or away from God. There's only two ways. But the Apostle Paul also takes this idea of walking and he applies it not to just the big question of our lives, but to the manner in which we live our Christian lives. He zooms in to speak of the Christian life. For Paul, walking describes not only the direction that we're going in, as important as that is, but the manner in which we travel, the journey itself. That's why we heard him urge us in Ephesians 4 to walk in a particular way, to walk in a particular manner. Or he says, he urges us to walk in a manner, right? Walk in a certain way, worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Friends, as we will see, God is not only concerned with our destination, but he's concerned with the manner in which we travel. Which brings us to the second lesson that we can learn from walking. And the second lesson is that progress is expected in the Christian life. Progress is expected in the Christian life. Walking implies progress. Just as you cannot walk without choosing a direction, you cannot walk without making progress. You cannot walk without moving towards something. And so for the Christian, progress is expected. Christians are expected to grow. This is built into the very idea of being a disciple, doesn't it? A disciple means a learner, a follower. Right? What do disciples do? What did the disciples do? They followed Jesus. Well, if you don't, if you're gonna follow Jesus, you gotta follow, you gotta keep moving, right? Or he'll go on ahead. It's following him. They make progress by imitating, by becoming transformed, by becoming like him. You can't follow Jesus sitting on the road. You have to take steps. This is, of course, one of the many reasons, while well, I'm convinced that treadmills are evil, right? Does anyone agree with me on this? I can persuade you. Yeah, I'll see some hands, right? I've always wanted to make a biblical argument against treadmills. I don't think they should exist, but th and this is about as close as I could get, right? Treadmills disrupt this relationship. They disrupt the relationship between walking and progress. They are a diabolical device intended to mock you and insult you, right? Because you, don't, you walk and you don't get anywhere, right? And that's not the point of walking. The point of walking is to go somewhere. Just this year, a British runner set out to break the record of the most miles run on a treadmill in a single week. Doesn't that sound like a terrible idea, right? And this poor guy ran, walked, whatever, 524 miles in one week on a treadmill, right? On a treadmill. 
He ran 524 miles on a treadmill, and he did not gain a single inch of ground, right? I hope his watch made fun of him, right? That's not the point of running. Of course, he was promptly admitted to the hospital, as he should have been. But that's not the point of running. The point of running is progress, to get somewhere, to see something. God has designed the Christian life to be a life of walking, a life of progress. Go somewhere, see something, grow. Friends, the Christian life is not like a treadmill. It's not where we just spin our wheels. It's more like a moving walkway where we make some effort, but really it's the Lord that carries us, isn't it? I suppose it's in this way that the idea of walking is closely connected to the idea of Christian growth. You've already heard that walking is a major theme in Ephesians 4 and 5, but it's really closely connected with growth. And they're, they're complementary ideas, right? Progress, growth, walking, they, they all fit together. If you look back down at Ephesians 4, you can see a few examples. I'll have to limit myself. But look at verse 12, Ephesians 4, verse 12. Paul says that he's given, that God has given gifts to the church. Why? For the building building up of the body of Christ, right? Building means growth. It means progress. And that building, verse 13, must take place until we reach maturity, like a lot of maturity, even the fullness of Christ. Again, in verse 15, Paul says, we are to grow, right? Grow up in every way. Again, verse 16, this growing, the body is to grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see all this progress language, this growth language? The natural expectation of the Christian is that Christians grow. That's one of the ways you can tell if a person is a Christian. Are they growing? You don't measure the growth like day to day, but month to month, perhaps year to year. Are you more mature than you were this time last year. Christians grow. It's a journey from childhood to maturity. When we get saved, we are not mature. We are children. We are infants, and infants must grow. That is the natural expectation. Sadly, I fear that much more of us are like Peter Pan, right? Which, of course, is a great story, by the way. I've got no problems with Peter Pan. Who does not like a story with cutthroat pirates, fairies, wild Indians, flying ships, and no treadmills? Right? It's a great story. Oh, and not to mention Captain Hook. But Neverland, the place where a boy can live and never grow up, a place where a boy can live and never have any responsibility, that is a fantasy. And when fantasy creeps into reality, that is tragedy. In a day where millions of men and women spend their 20s and 30s and maybe 40s doing all they can to avoid adult responsibility, right? Have you ever seen the hashtag adulting, right? It's like people are proud that like one day in their, when they're 28 years old, they did something responsible, adulting. Where people try to shirk their responsibility, and psychologists have even given a name to this. They call it the Peter Pan syndrome. Just like the boy, there are millions of men, particularly, 
who don't grow up. And I fear that for Christians, there are many Christians who have a spiritual Peter Pan syndrome. We've given time and effort to ensure that we're on the right path. We've punched our ticket to heaven, but there the effort stops. So many Christians, they get on the right path, but they never really grow. They just sit down and wait. And they will be ushered into heaven as spiritual infants or adolescents. Yet that is not God's intention for us. When I was in college, I entered a short triathlon race outside of Atlanta, Georgia. I'd never done a race of any sort before. I was very green, had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to prepare. I didn't have any idea about race strategy. I didn't really know how to use my bike that well, but I went all out, right? Everybody's passing me on the first leg, but on the second leg on the bike, man, I was flying until my tire blew out, right? In my excitement, I had way overinflated my tire, and I did not think to bring a spare like everyone else, right? People would stop and ask, do you need help? I'm like, I don't have a spare. They're like, why don't you bring a spare? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So, I mean, halfway through the race, I was still 10 miles away from the finish line, but I had to sit down on the side of the road and wait. And I watched every single person that I had been so proud to pass, they all passed me. Every, I mean, the people pushing strollers up the hill passed me, right? Everyone passed me. I had to wait until about an hour later when the truck came by, the truck that was like picking up the cones, right, because the race was over. I'd throw my bike in the back, and he escorted me to the finish line. Friends, I'm afraid that many of us as Christians are like me in that race. We get on the right path, but the journey is hard. We face setbacks. We find the hills are steep. Growth takes effort. And so rather than walking, rather either than limping, we just sit down, wait for the truck, usher me into heaven. I'll get there. That's not how you run a race. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said that do you not know that in a race all the runners run and one receives a prize? So the run that you may obtain it. Right? In a race, every step matters. Usain Bolt in his 100-yard dash did not stop to tie his shoe. Right? Every step matters because it is a race. Every ounce of effort Every step, every stroke, every pedal matters, and it is all worth it because it is one step closer to the finish line. Friends, healthy Christians grow. They grow because they don't want to stay where they are. They want to grow. No genuine Christian wants to be a spiritual Peter Pan, not one that lives in the real world. The stakes are too high. In fact, Paul mentions the alternative in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Look back down with me. This is the alternative if you don't grow. So that we may no longer be children. Right? What happens if a child doesn't grow? A child remains a child. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, 
by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Right, did, you, did you catch that? If you don't grow, if you sit down on the side of the road and wait for the cone truck to come pick you up, you will remain as a child. And children are wonderful when they're children. But adults are not good children. Right? If you don't grow, you will be a child in the faith. You will be spiritually unstable, just like a child. You'll be tossed to and fro like a beach ball bouncing back and forth in the waves. You'll be blown around by every wind of doctrine, every fresh idea, every spiritual Facebook meme. Right? Immature Christians can't think for themselves. They can't feed themselves. They have to be spoon-fed. They can't eat meat. They have to have milk. What a pitiful image it would be to see so many grown men sitting around a Thanksgiving dinner sucking on a bottle of milk. Christians grow, and we grow until the end. This brings us to one last lesson that we can learn from walking, and that's related to the destination. We have a long ways to go. The finish line is, in one sense, a long ways away. Look at some of the destination language Paul uses in Ephesians 4, right? How far do we need to go? How, how far away is the finish line? How much should we grow? Verse 13 says that we are to grow until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, we could spend a whole sermon on this. But basically, Paul says we are to grow until we look like who? Jesus. You are to continue making progress in the faith until you look just like Jesus. Until people would be confused about who is who. We are talking perfect, total, complete maturity. We are to grow until we share the character of Christ himself. You'll notice from some of this language that we are also to, we're to do this together. This is why the church is so important. We are to grow until we all attain the goal. The image here is we are not racing as individuals. This is a team event. And we are not done until every single person crosses the finish line. Did you see that language there in, in verse 13? Until we all attain this unity. Until we all attain this fullness. And there's other examples in this text. Christian growth does not happen in isolation. This is why you can't just sit home and read a book or listen to a podcast or listen to a better preacher than me. Right? You need to be with other Christians growing together. That's what a healthy body does. And as you grow, you help other people grow. That's what a healthy body does. Verse 16 says that when each part is working properly, that will make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's the body growing, building itself up in love. The people that are sitting around you are your responsibility. Their growth their spiritual maturity is in part your responsibility. Not just mine, but yours. Which is why it's so important to commit to growing in a local body of Christians. 
whether it's here or some other Bible preaching church down the road, Christians grow and they grow together. So the question for us today is this. First, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you on the path that leads to destruction or are you on the path that leads to life? Are you headed in the right direction on the AT? But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the question is this. How do you need to grow? I mean, we could ask, how do I know where I need to grow? Well, taking some of the cues from this text, let me just ask you a few questions. Do you have any relationship problems? Do you struggle to love difficult people? Well, then you need to grow. Or what about the knowledge of the Son of God? Is there anything anything at all about God that you don't know? Well, then you need to grow. Or what about the stature of Jesus? Are there any ways in your life that you do not look exactly like Jesus? Well, you need to grow. Or what about the work of the ministry? How much fruit is in your life due to your ministry? How many other Christians are more mature because you live? How many people have been, have been brought to Christ because of your testimony? You need more? Well, then you need to grow. That is the call for us this morning. It is to follow Jesus and to continue following him into maturity. As we say each week, God's word always demands a response. So I'd like to invite you this morning that as our musicians come and play, we're going to move into a time of invitation, which is a time of of reflection where we want to ask you, encourage you to go before the Lord and ask him, what would God have you to say and do this morning? Will you bow your head and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We've heard this call to growth and we tremble at its weight. We pray, Father, that you would direct us according to your spirit this morning to see how it is you're calling us to change and how you're calling us to grow. Convict us of where we have been lazy, where we've just sat down on the road and waited. And Father, if we're walking in the wrong direction, convict us clearly. Help us to discern this this morning, we pray. We stand and let's sing together. I'll be here at the front if you'd like to have someone pray with you. The altar is open.